Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. To the audio, to the audio. I am. Come on, in, come on, in. Hang your cloak on a pig. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channels, Strange Planet on YouTube, and Richard Serrett's Strange Planet on Rumble. Uh, before we get rolling. A shout out to our Star Chamber tier Patreon, uh, Patreon supporters, Tim Sullivan and Deep Paul. They've been with us for quite a while. Thank you both for your generous monthly support. It means a great deal to me and everyone here on the program, and it really helps us here at Strange Planet to continue to produce these programs every week for you. And if you'd like to become an official Strange Planet donor, Go to patreon.com slash strangeplanet, all one word, patreon.com slash strangeplanet. And there are several donor levels to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you, and any amount is greatly appreciated. On this edition of the program, I'm joined by a journalist, author, and former TV news reporter to discuss some of the most remarkable storms and shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, including the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, of course, back in November of 1975. That maritime tragedy, of course, immortalized in song by Gordon Lightfoot. And the ferocity of the Great Lakes waters have taken down thousands of uh, other ships with the cold, fresh water preserving their remains and even holding on to the passengers as the cold water temperatures keep bodies from floating up after decomposition begins. And some of these wrecks remain um, popular diving sites, while others remain undiscovered in the deep waters. Although these uh, waters remain uh, violent come storm season, safety requirements and, and tech advancements have helped prevent more wrecks from happening in recent years. The Gales of November, uh, not just a lyric in Lightfoot's song, they're a yearly dangerous weather pattern that rocks the shores of the Great Lakes, causing massive storms with up to 50 mile an hour winds and 100 mile an hour gusts. They've resulted in wave heights of just under 30 feet on Lake Superior and rumored wave heights of above 40 feet. So let us begin two hours on the Great Lakes. Rick Mixter specializes in maritime and aviation history. He's been awarded the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History featured on PBS and the History Channel and served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, one of the most requested speakers on the Great Lakes. He's versed in everything from shipwrecks to lighthouses and even aviation, and he's the host of the Shipwreck Podcast and the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters and The Wheelsman. Rick Mixter, welcome to the program. How are you? Oh, Richard, I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing stories with your audience. 
well, I grew up um, maybe 40 minutes from Lake Erie in Brantford, Ontario. We would, um, every summer, we would um, head down to Long Point or Port Dover and spend a lot of time uh, on Lake Erie. So this is a, a topic near and dear to me. Uh, but for you, why Great Lakes marine history, Rick? Oh, it's in my backyard. I, I, like you, grew up on the Great Lakes. I was a little further north up by Marquette, Michigan, and I've always been surrounded by the lakes. We swim in them and explore them, and it uh, just makes sense that uh, I'm surrounded now by 5,000-plus shipwrecks and uh, so many stories, and I, I think it's just fascinating. And why so many uh, shipwrecks in the Great Lakes? Well, if you think about it, it, starting in 1679, when our first vessel came up to the upper Great Lakes, the Griffin, um, typically there were no highways, obviously. There was no trucks or trains. The only way to get the cargo around the Great Lakes um, was to take it on a sailing vessel at first and eventually going to steamship. And uh, it was revolutionized by the, the Sioux Locks in 1855, opening up the uh, upper Lake Superior to so much new commerce and with the copper and iron ore moving through there, we had thousands of ships that would do everything from hauling package freight to the big commodities, the copper, the iron ore, the wheat, um, the coal, like that. It was all moved by ship and that's why we have so many accidents that have occurred. So it must have been like, I don't know, rush hour in Detroit back in the, like the 19th century with all these ships crisscrossing these shipping lanes? I've done enough crazy things with scuba diving and flying jets and uh, uh, diving in submarines. I know that uh, driving to Detroit is much da more dangerous. <laughs> You're right. It's a good analogy. There was a lot of traffic, um, and, and many times uh, we had people who didn't know all the rules, and we also had winds that would come up. Um, so even if we did have established shipping lanes, these vessels would collide into each other. They would uh, explode from boiler accidents, fires. Um, and then, of course, the gales that would come in specifically from September, October, November um, before the lakes froze over. That was the dangerous time and the, the really the rush to try to get things in because once the lakes were frozen, you couldn't uh, haul any more cargo. So it was important to get through and many captains up until 1913 actually got bonuses for getting cargo through that late. So you mentioned, was it 5,000 shipwrecks uh, on all of the Great Lakes since like the 17th century? They weren't all insured, and uh, we don't have a, you know, a perfect record for all of them, especially with 300 years of commerce on the lakes. Um, but we're anywhere between 5,000 and 10,000 are some of the numbers. The other part is, you know, was it salvaged? Uh, so many of the wrecks go down in Lake Erie, and you can still see the mast because the average depth on Erie is only 70 feet. So it wasn't hard to uh, get in there and, and have companies that were very adept to bringing these shipwrecks up, and they recovered them. So it might have been shipwrecked, but it probably isn't still there. That's especially true on what most consider the most dangerous part of the lakes, and that's at the tip of Michigan's thumb, where there's all kinds of rocks and a lot of commerce, a lot of traffic, and uh, there were just you know countless accidents, but no real count of shipwrecks up there because they could be recovered. And I'm looking at a figure here. I don't know. This seems unbelievable to me 30,000 sailors have lost their lives in great lake wrecks is that true and again it's it's so difficult because even in the early days there were no you know they would m many times keep the records of who the engineer was especially a skilled um, steamboat engineer 
Um, but if you had people that just jumped on board for a job, you know, they, they might not have been on the enrollment. So uh, many times we don't even know what that exact number is. We even argue in the big storms of 1913 and 1905, 1940, you know, the exact count we don't know for sure. But a good guess is between 25 and 30,000 people that were lost just in shipping accidents and then countless others who've been lost uh, tragically, you know, with uh, other seafaring jobs or even just swimming in the Great Lakes, which are quite dangerous. And why November? Why is November particularly um, dangerous on the Great Lakes? We're still trying to figure that out. And, and we know it's because of the storms that come in. But the thought has always been, you know, why is that? And, and we're measuring now in many of our offshore lighthouses the evaporation of the lakes to see how that feeds into the uh, the storms that come in. We know it's Canadian cold air that drops in in November, and that collides with the Gulf Stream uh, moisture that we have. And when a low-pressure system comes in and gets fed by a second low-pressure, we see these weather bombs that go off on the Great Lakes. And I think it is the, the warmer lake that's offloading that heat that it, it gained all summer and the cold Arctic air that comes in that just causes these ferocious winds that can go, in the case of 1913, 16 hours of 60-mile-per-hour winds. So it's just tragic to anybody who's caught in there, and there's so few places to hide once you're on the open lakes, on, on just about all of the lakes. You know, we're lucky to have a couple of peninsulas that come out that offer shelter, but for the most part, if you're out in the middle of it, you're stuck, and you've got to try to navigate it. Well, you mentioned the the the, uh, the great uh, storm of 1913, otherwise known as the Big Blow. Um, how, how many people uh, perished in that storm? It was a weekend storm, and uh, 250 sailors were lost. And, and it was really two series of storms that came in. And, and if you think of 1913, the only real weather forecasting you had was to look at your barometer. And if the barometer falls, and in that case it actually bottomed out, you know that bad weather is coming in, that low pressure causes high winds. And once it starts to bounce back up, the captains would get, you know, a, a, a new uh, encouragement to go back into the storm. And that's what happened with many of the small boats that thought it was okay to go out. In the case of uh, off of Marquette, the H.B. Smith didn't even tie down all of their hatches. They thought that they could get into the, the, uh, the lake and try to save some time. And unfortunately, the second punch of that storm came in, and that's where we saw a lot of the ships. Every one of the Great Lakes except Lake Ontario lost a major ship, and 250 people lost their lives. Wow. Uh, in your book, The Wheelsman, you, you kind of give a, uh, a firsthand account of what that storm was like through the eyes of Ed Canaby, who was uh, captain of the steamer, the H.B. Hagwood. Tell me about uh, Captain Canaby. Oh, absolutely. It was Kanabi, and he was just a wheelsman. Well, I was lucky because he's 18 years old, and he t gives up a farming job in Michigan's Thumb and decides he's going to make some money on the lake. So he gets on board the H.B. Hoggood as just the, uh, the wheelsman. So you work your way up. You do a deck watch, and then if you get enough confidence from the captain, you can move into the, the wheelsman position. Um, so it was, it was a good job to have. But here he is at the wheel with these bins that come, and Ed Kanabi turns out to be one of the very few people who actually see the last moments of four of the ships that are lost in the 1913 storm on Lake Huron. So you're, you're talking about the Charles Price, 
the Regina, uh, the uh, Wexford, all of these vessels um, lost the, uh, um, up by uh, Alpina, they actually had another one go down as well. These are the, some of the largest steel vessels on the Great Lakes vanishing on Lake uh, Huron. And we still can't find the uh, James Carruthers. That's 550 feet long somewhere in probably northern Canada. Um, if you look on Lake Huron going above Georgian Bay, it's out there and people have been looking for it. And, and how did Canabi survive? He made it through by uh, the way several different ships did. The, the overwhelming amount of ships were pushed ashore and uh, that saved a lot of them but damaged the ship. And the way that many of the ships, including the Sheetal and the H.B. Hoggood, would try to stay in deep water and in blinding snow with no type of navigation. You know, now we have satellites. Um, even earlier, we had Loran radio signals that we could do, or even lighthouses would put out beacons that we could at least know. The only way that they knew in 1913 was to drop a lead line down and measure the depth of the water and guess how close to shore they were. And if they got close, they did the most dangerous thing, and that was to flip the ship around to turn it and go back into deep water and keep doing that until they can ride the storm out. So having the storm off of your nose or having it off of your aft end, um, that's not a problem for these ships. The problem is when you take it a beam, when it comes across, and that causes those ships to roll over. And that's why we found so many of those ships from the 1913 storm upside down. Wow. Is that because they were top heavy? Were they overloaded on top? Why would they, would they roll over that way? Many of them were loaded high. The Regina actually had hay on the deck, which wouldn't be that much of a problem. Um, but the thought prop is, is really that it was probably icing that, that got them. The design of the Great Lakes freighter is such that it's uh, basically a very long ship. And then on the front end of it, it has uh, cabins and the pilot house. And then on the back end, you'll see all of the engineering, the engine, the cooks. Um, and all the oilers and stuff would be on in the back section. And then that whole midsection is just hatches. And that's designed for our giant uh, uh, ore docks and the loading facilities that we have for wheat that they could lower down and empty in and, and do it very quickly. And that makes it more profitable for the ships. So with those heavy front ends and any icing that came up, the thought is that they could roll over, especially if they tried to turn to try to, you know, ride out that storm. And that's why we see uh, many of the most famous, like the Regina and the Charles Price, are uh, upside down on the bottom. Rick Mixter is a maritime and aviation historian, particularly with the Great Lakes, and uh, also a, a president of the uh, Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, or, or did serve as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, and the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters, and The Wheelsman, and his podcast um, is the Shipwreck Podcast, shipwreckpodcast.com, shipwreckpodcast.com. Um, if, you, if you went into the, into the lake, Lake Superior, I mean, even in, even in the height of summer, it's cold. If you go into Lake Superior in November, uh, I mean, how long would you last? And literally minutes, you know, you're lucky in, in November that it is has taken all winter to kind of, or all, all summer, forgive me, to heat up. 
So in many cases, it was actually warmer to be in the water. In the case of the Carl D. Bradley, the largest shipwreck in Lake Michigan, um, it went down in November, but the water was actually warmer than what the air was, and that happened on Lake Huron, too. Superior, you're right, because of its depth, 1,300 feet deep, um, most times it doesn't warm up. If we get a 60-degree temperature in Lake Superior, that was considered nice. I remember as a kid waiting in there until your knees get numb, mm -hmm. you know, you're didn't even feel and you get out of the water really quickly those poor sailors before we had exposure suits could only make a you know a, a few minutes and then they couldn't even help themselves uh, the water is just so cold would there have been any point to wearing a life jacket then in in the Nova in november in lake superior if you're on one of these vessels I think, so. I mean, obviously, first, you, you know, you're hoping that maybe even if you pass out, that the help would only be around the corner and they could, you know, get you. Um, not wearing one is always the worst case, and I, I teach boating safety, so uh, literally I want everybody to wear life jackets when they can. Um, but, yeah, if you're in the middle of the lake, I, I guess you might think maybe it's not worth it. The other part, and it's kind of morbid, is you would want your loved one to find your body. The, the story of Lake Superior never giving up its dead is because of that cold, you know, that cold water. And as you sink, you don't rise back up again because your body doesn't bloat, sadly, the way, you know, it would normally happen in warm water. So um, I think, yeah, that would give some kind of respite, if, you know, for the family members if you were lost, too. That And, it, and usually they're marked with a, a ship's name on it, too, so there's no question what happened. But the hope is, obviously, that you would be saved. And, and now today with the technology that we have, including satellite tracking and, um, exposure suits, you can bob along in ice cold water and uh, and have plenty of time and, and hopefully, you know, people would know that you went down with the technology we have today to be able to track that. Because the cold water preserves the body, I mean, this is kind of morbid too, but if, if, if there was a, a sailor, um, let's say from the 1800s or even before, we mentioned, you mentioned the griffin that went down in the in the 17th century, uh, I mean, is it possible that's, that if you were down deep enough that even, you know, 200 years later, your body would be somewhat preserved? Well, we typically see bones from that era. So as you go 200, you know, and it depends too, uh, again, not to be too graphic, but we have critters in the Great Lakes too. And, you know, unfortunately, that, that leaves that, the body to that. But in the case of the Kamloops, it was lost in uh, 1927. It's at Isle Royal in 200 feet of water, and the engineer is still in, you know, at his station floating there. So it happens, and it does preserve, but it, it's not you know, like you would see at a funeral home. It, it's pretty horrible, and, and I, I guess I'm too matter-of-fact about that. I was on the sheriff's dive team for years. That's where I got a lot of my training, and part of our job was to recover those people and to, to bring, you know, some, some solace, you hope, to the, the right. loved ones who lost a loved one on the water, whether, you know, be an accident or, you know, intentional. Um, it, you just, I think that's what we kind of build ourselves on is that that's why we do that, to, to go through and bring back the, the bodies for people so they can bury their loved ones. What's the visibility um, like in, uh, I'm not sure if you mainly dive in, in Lake Michigan, uh, but what would the visibility be in, Lake Superior, where you, where you, as you say, at its greatest depth, something like uh, uh, 1,300, is it 1,300 feet? It is off of the Keweenaw. We have a, a very deep spot, and, and that lake is crystal. I mean, it, it was called the Freshwater Sea for a reason when the French first found it. Um, it's just an amazing lake. It, it's 
for some reason, the chemical composition does not allow the zebra mussels to go into the deeper areas. Um, so we see them around the coastline and we see them where rivers come in where the zebra mussel can still feed, but the Great Lake uh, Superior does not seem to be as affected. Now, if you go into, and I've been lucky to dive the, all of the Great Lakes, and uh, Lake Erie is like pea soup, even with the zebra mussels, um, it, it's just so shallow that it heats up and it could be 70 degrees at the very bottom of, you know, 70 or 80 feet. So that's a lake that just seems to heat up and get a lot of algae and it's hard to see. Uh, lake Huron and Lake Michigan both have, have had really great improvements in visibility, which for a scuba diver is awesome. For a fisherman is lousy because it's just, you know, destroying the habitat for many of our fishes. And so we're seeing, de you know, declines in um, yellow perch and wild, walleye numbers and stuff. Um, so hopefully they don't, you know, they start to balance out here. The other bad part is those zebra mussels just clog everything and they just get on shipwrecks and, and just coat. So where we normally see on, on the Lake Superior shipwreck, and we did last summer, we found 10 new shipwrecks and at least one of them had the name still on it in gold letters said Atlanta. So, you know, that's the best case scenario is to have that amazing visibility and, and the cameras can see it. Uh, the worst case is coated with zebra mussels, and we have to do a little more detective work to try to figure out by length and um, hopefully digging to finding some numbers or hatch arrangements or, uh, you know, just general outlay of the of the ship to, to figure out which ship we found. Uh, Rick, we'll take a time out when we come back. I want to talk about another big storm, the 1940 Armistice Day storm on the Great Lakes. And uh, we'll also get into some of the famous uh, shipwrecks, including, of course, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Rick Mixter stays with us as we talk shipwrecks and storms on the Great Lakes. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. And we are back with Rick Mixter, maritime aviation historian and uh, awarded by the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History, featured on PBS and the History Channel served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, one of the most requ uh, requested speakers on the Great Lakes, versed in everything from shipwrecks to lighthouses uh, and even aviation. And again, host of the Shipwreck Podcast, shipwreckpodcast.com, and uh, the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters and the Wheelsman. So we were talking about uh, storms on the Great Lakes. And uh, the other one, of course, they, they always seem to happen in November, uh, is the 1940 Armistice Day storm. So November 11th, take us back. What happened? It was an incredible storm that actually started out, if you think, into Washington State, um, where there was a suspension bridge. You think about the mighty Mackinac Bridge in Michigan. Here was a small one that uh, actually shook itself to pieces as this storm started. And it, by the time it hit Chicago and started raging northward, it was going 126 miles an hour. So the winds were just tearing at the lakes. They blew out the portholes on one of the lighthouses at, lake, at uh, Lansing Shoals, and it hit three different freighters, uh, pushed four actually ashore, and uh, tore up one, the uh, Minch, a Canadian freighter, all hands lost, ripped it right in two, right next to the shoreline with no survivors. Uh, the Novodoc, a tiny uh, steamer that was uh, based out of Canada, was coming up and uh, got pushed up onto the sandbar and the cooks, the two cooks got washed right out of the galley and were never found. And uh, the rest of the 17 guys were rescued by a local fisherman. The Coast Guard had never 
had an opportunity to get uh, life-saving equipment down to the beach. It was up to the local guys to get them out, and they found out, too, that the Davik had flipped over with all hands, a Detroit captain, and uh, everybody drowned. It's in 200 feet of water and uh, one of the larger steel vessels that was out there. So 60 different people lost their lives. At least three freighters were destroyed. The Sinaloa was another rescue that they had up in northern Lake Michigan. So definitely Lake Michigan's worst storm. And I was so lucky to be able to meet two of the guys from there. That's it's Literally my entire career has been finding those eyewitnesses to the 1913 storm, 1940 storm, and all the big wrecks from all the big lakes. And uh, that it's just amazing to be able to talk to them about what they went through. Uh, you mentioned the Canadian freighter, the Novodoc. Was uh, Lloyd Belcher, uh, who is featured in your book, The Wheelsman, uh, did you meet with him personally and speak with him about it? I did, and not too far from where your studio is in Mississauga. And uh, it's an honor to talk to him. Here's a guy that sat in there and, and watched as these waves came up and stole their lifeboat. So they're stuck off of Ludington, Michigan, off of Pentwater. And... Uh, the, the boat gets washed away. They know they're stuck. The uh, first mate wants to swim for it. And the, the rumor was that Dixon Pell had been on at least 13 other shipwrecks, which always leads me to wonder why anyone ever sailed with him with so many accidents. But um, here's Belcher at the wheel. And he said, finally, a big wave kicked in the glass and they had to abandon the, the pilot house and go down into the captain's room where they started to get very cold. They were there for two different nights. As I said, the Coast Guard figured that they uh, were just stuck on the reef and that they weren't in real danger, but uh, they were being pounded apart by those killer waves, and they ended up building a fire in one of their buckets uh, so they could stay warm. The poor guys in the back section had nothing to keep warm. They were in knee-deep water. It was the 11th day of the 11th month of 1940, so it was freezing cold, and uh, Howard Goldsmith was the guy I interviewed that lived in Georgian Bay, and I got to go to his house and, and hear his stories personally, which I'll tell you makes the hair on your arm stand up when they tell you what those storms are like. I can't imagine uh, surviving something like that and not being traumatized for life. When they retell these stories, um, how, how, how are they? Do they get emotional? They do, and that's a part of the art of doing it. You're so adept to doing interviews. You know that the first thing you don't want to do is jump into the sad stuff. You want to try to get the background and learn about these men and why they took to the lakes. Um, in the case of, of uh, Mr. Kanabi, he had had a bad stroke, and uh, his, his daughter didn't think he'd be able to remember. But these things are burned into your mind, and he could tell that story exactly the same way. In fact, once he got done telling me, he started the whole story over again about the waves and the crazy sailors that, you know, tried to take on the storm. So, yeah, you, you've got to be very careful about where you start and know that you're going to end with the tragedy of losing their best friends on these boats because they're not going to come back from that once you're there. When you, if you survive a shipwreck, um, do, the, do you generally go back out on the on the lake, or are you are you are you are, in your experience are they are they done? Do they retire? It's a mixed bag. In the case of Goldsmith, he was done. His brother had talked him into going into the engine room, and he said, "I'm not going to do it again." Um, I, I would say Kanabi went on two different boats. In fact, um, he stayed on the Hoggett. It was pulled off of the beach. 
Um, and they, they, the captain said, listen, everybody else quit. I need you. And he stayed with it and laid it up in Buffalo. Um, the case of the Carl Bradley, uh, the one sailor never sailed again. He stayed with the company and, and stayed on land. Um, Dennis Hale also never sailed again. He, he eventually went for a ride on a freighter, as did Frank Mays from the Bradley, but uh, none of them served again. So a mixed bag. Even the Cedarville, half of the guys quit, half of the guys uh, went back to the lakes because it's all they knew. Are these uh, ship shipwrecks, if they've, if they've not been um, raised, are they protected by maritime law as, you know, as basically as grave sites? Not so much as grave sites. I mean, that's, that's kind of the argument that you hear um, with military vessels, especially, that they're sealed off and you can't dive them. And that's the Canada actually has three different shipwrecks that they protect, the Edmund Fitzgerald and then the War of 1812 ships, the Hamilton and Scourge. So there is protection, I think, because of that. Um, but they're all pretty much grave sites. I, every one of the wrecks that, you know, you dive, especially around um, – uh, Isle Royal has plenty of, of missing sailors, um, but many of the wrecks I've dove over 150 of them. I would say at least 80% of them have at least you know one body that's still unaccounted for, not necessarily in the shipwreck. So we treat them as grave sites, but they certainly don't get any more protection. In Michigan, we have a, a law that actually protects the, the underwater artifacts. So if it's not buried into the bottom, technically it's owned by the state. And we fight pretty hard to keep them. Uh, same with the wrecks that you guys have, especially in Tobomori, which is an underwater park. Um, that's an area for divers and the Arabia and all the wrecks and even the ones that they, they sank there on purpose, the Niagara, um, are protected because that's part of the revenue stream up there. That's a big tourism dollar. And if you keep taking everything off the shipwrecks, there'll be nothing left for people to see. Um, the, the holy grail of shipwrecks it's often described, the, the Griffin. Tell us about that. We've got about a minute and a half here, and then we can continue on uh, talking about the Griffin into the next uh, segment. Griffin's amazing. I mean, here's the, the LaSalle was one of the great explorers of the Great Lakes and uh, had to build a ship on the other side of Niagara Falls and sailed it, and it went into a big storm, was almost lost on, on Saginaw Bay, and then uh, he cheated and, and was not supposed to pick up furs, but he did and sent it back to try to pay his bills, and it vanished. So we're looking for it. Every year we seem to have somebody that found it, but uh, it, it's a fascinating story, and uh, I'd love to talk more about it. Uh, late 1600s, was it, that, that it uh, disappeared? 79, and in September as it went, went through the storm, and uh, LaSalle did not stay with the ship. He was going to explore the route that Marquette and Joliet had to discovered down the Mississippi, and so he sent it back to try to pay some of his bills. He owed everybody, including the governor of New France, so uh, he, he sent back some furs, and they never made it. So um, uh, I have a little more time than I thought, <laughs> so we'll keep going here just for a few minutes here. Uh, so uh, I'd read there were uh, cannons. How many can There were like seven cannons on board? There's two larger cannons, and the rest would be very small. And, and we know that these are metal, especially the bigger cannon. And we know from LaSalle's other ships that he lost, he did make it eventually all the way down the Mississippi, and, and King Louis XIV wanted to claim that area. And in fact, they called it Louisiana because of King Louis XIV. And to keep the Spanish away, they sent LaSalle back. But he couldn't find Louisiana or the Mississippi. So he sank on board another ship. 
Um, the, the LaBelle actually sank when he was on the land, and uh, he tried to make his way back to the to the Great Lakes, um, but all of his ships were gone, and his men eventually murdered him. So the the thought, you know, where was LaBelle? Well, they found it in the middle of the Gulf. They raised it up, and they found 1.5 million artifacts on it, and now it sits in a museum. They actually brought it up and freeze-dried it. Um, and that included sailors' bodies and all kinds of cannons, and they had markings on there that said King Louis the Fourteenth and who created the cannon. So there's going to be irrefutable proof when we do find the griffin. Probably not as much as what was on the bell, because that was going to set up an entire colony, if you will, whereas the griffin was more of just a, 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 a fur trading ship. So it was loaded full of furs. But there's definitely some guns on there that we know a magnetometer will find, regardless if the uh, the ship is buried. All right, Rick, another time out. Then back on the other side, more of my conversation with Rick Mixter as we talk Great Lakes uh, maritime disasters. Stay with us. Rick Mixter stays with us. This is a, a short mic, um, a short segment, uh, Rick. I just wanted to um, finish up with the Griffin, sort of the holy grail of shipwrecks. Um, What's the suspected location of this 17th century vessel? Uh, it's argued because uh, since the 1930s, people have been looking everywhere from northern Lake Michigan to northern Lake Huron near Manitoulin Island. But the best bet is that it's going to be uh, by Gulliver, Michigan. As you look in the northern area, um, Seshwa Lighthouse is out that way. It's a, the, the French word for the only choice of lighthouses. So here's an area that has island chains that are south of there and there's a good bet that it probably was lost there. It was supposed to stop at the um, the Straits of Mackinac, St. Ignace, and it didn't. So we don't think it went past. I mentioned uh, Lake Erie growing up not too far from Lake Erie. And uh, I, I hope the pickerel are good this year. I'm taking my boys. We're doing a charter fishing. Uh, well, walleye, I guess, is uh, the other term for pickerel. I'm I'm hearing that the, uh, the the walleye are particularly good now. The last couple of seasons, however, getting into Lake Erie, 2,000 shipwrecks alone. Uh, I've read them among the highest concentration of wrecks in the world. Now it's shallow. Um, I mean, when I think of, you know. Um, dangerous waters i think of rocky rocky shores i think of lake superior because of the depth why is lake erie so dangerous or was it i mean at, at the time it still is i mean we still see you know boats that go down luckily we're not seeing these giant freighters anymore in the case of lake erie it was a lot of collisions there was certainly um the fog that happens in the springtime on all of the great lakes is so horrible and before they had really good radar um, it, it just was, you know, you would find captains that would still be going full speed uh, when they can't even see the end of their own ship. So that we had a couple of accidents. The largest shipwreck ever lost in Lake Erie, the James Reed, went down that way. I actually interviewed one of the guys that uh, was on board. He said that the ship sank and one of the mates actually climbed up the mast and never got wet because the ship settled on the bottom in 70 feet and the mast was still poking above the water and that's all you could see from this massive freighter were two uh, essentially antennas if you will of where these masts broke the surface so um yeah we see a lot of collisions we saw a lot of fires um and the, the waves are crazy on that lake they seem to kick up so incredibly fast 
and bounce off the shoreline to where you might think you can take it off your bow, and all of a sudden you get a ricochet wave that comes the other direction, and that's where you get into real trouble. Uh, Lake Michigan. Um, is there a Lake Michigan Triangle? Is it similar to the Bermuda Triangle, or does it have to do more with you know rocky shores and, and, and things like that? I just I don't put a lot of credence in the in the uh, triangle because the disappearances that happen there always seem to be tied to a storm. It's very rare that we look and say you know the old adage is they, she sailed into a crack in the lake. We've had airplanes that have gone down, um, but we all know that that could be mechanical failure. And the biggest that went down in Lake Michigan in that area, which is often attributed to this triangle. Um, was in a storm. So, you know, the updrafts and the downdrafts, I'm a pilot, you're very, you know, familiar with not going into any kind of a thunderstorm because of what it can do to an aircraft. Um, so I don't think that there's a big mystery in any of that. Um, it, it is strange that, you know, many of the vessels go away and, and nobody survives it. Um, and I think that lends a lot of credo. Um, but if you've been in the middle of the lake, it, it's easy to fly over in a, in a big jet. I can clear it in 35 minutes. Um, but when you're on that lake and you can't see either shore, you realize these are not ponds. These are massive inland seas. Mm, indeed. Um, furthest point from, uh, let me see now. I'm trying to remember. We had a, we had um, kind of a memory thing, like a poem for the Great Lakes. Lake Erie is the shallowest. Lake Superior is uh, the deepest. What's the biggest? Is it Lake Huron? No, the biggest is definitely superior. It's got just by sheer volume. And I've, I've been lucky enough to drive all the way around it, too, and you get a real appreciation for it. Yeah, well, we spent many summer holidays as a kid driving around north of Superior, all the provincial parks in Ontario. But I'm just trying to imagine back in the day, uh, as you say, I mean, you can you can fly over. Uh, but the, the furthest point, let's say, from one end of Lake Superior to the other that would have been traveled by ship, I mean, how, that must have taken, like, a week or two? Well, it would take, I mean, if you go from Superior on a steamship, you can do it now, you could do it in over a little over a day. Um, but back in the, the early days, yeah, in sailing, you, especially if you didn't have cooperative winds, um, it could take several days to be able to get across there. And that was often the case before the locks were actually built. You know, you had a very limit, limited amount of ships that were actually there, um, first starting out with just the uh, the sailing vessels. And yeah, it, it could take up to a week to uh, to get back and forth. But every little corner, you know, every um, there's just so many miles of lake there, um, and so many different ports from Thunder Bay all the way down to the, the early ports that we had in Superior, Wisconsin, and um, all the way through that area, Bayfield. Um, there were ports all the way through there that uh, they had regular service, and they couldn't even get the mail there. The only way to do it was through these steamboats to do it. So it was quite remote. All right, Rick, another time out. We'll come back. And uh, I want to talk about um, the, the, the ghost fleet of uh, Lake Superior, if you're good to talk about that for a few moments. Rick Mixter is with us, and the website is uh, lakefury.com, and the, the podcast is Shipwreck Podcast, available at shipwreckpodcast.com. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Rick Mixter is with us, specializing in maritime and aviation history on the Great Lakes. He's been awarded by the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History and featured on PBS and the History Channel and served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association. And uh, his latest book is Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters. We'll get into that in a few moments. And uh, The Wheelsman, 
Um, you mentioned this, you know, the idea of uh, a ship just completely vanishing, sailing through a crack in the lake. And that's been ascribed to the um, the Bannockburn. Um, tell me a little bit about the, uh, the the Bannockburn. This, I guess, this was a steel hulled. Was that a steel hulled freighter? It was, yeah, and it was uh, a British design that came over to the Great Lakes, so considered to be, you know, strong enough to take on whatever the Great Lakes could give. Um, it's, unfortunately, she had hit the bottom of uh, of one of the ports before and had torn out a plate in the Sulox. So there, there were some concerns about, you know, maybe some of the damage that had been done to her. She clearly did go into a storm. I mean, they did were able to look at the uh, the record, and, and when she vanished, there was a gale force wind up there. But she was up near what we call Standard Rock, which is a, a very mysterious area up there that it's 1,200 feet deep, and then all of a sudden these mountain peaks come up out of nowhere. So you'll, you're in the middle of Lake Superior where, you, you know, you're hundreds of miles from shore, and here's a rock breaking the uh, the surface. So very dangerous. They put a lighthouse there. Um, this is the area, and north of there is Shapir Superior Shoals, another high reef area that people believe that maybe Bonnetburn had ripped her bottom out there. But it, it vanished with everybody. They only found a life jacket in Grand Marais in Michigan uh, with a little bit of blood on it, and there was talk of uh, oars being found. And in my book, Bottled Goodbyes, I actually go into a lot of detail not so much on the mystery of it, because it wasn't super mysterious. Um, it was more of why did it become so mysterious? Uh, there's so many different authors that took and put their own spin on that. Jim Kerwood being one of them who uh, wrote amazing magazine articles, and he wrote an entire fictitious story about the Bonnock Burn and how some of the men survived, and a widow went up there and met some of the survivors. And, of course, none of it was true. And then he put out a, a great book on the Great Lakes. It's considered one of the, the most fantastic books that's come out. And he talked about how the ice devils grabbed the ship and sank it and, and how it's being, you know, seen by other ships as a ghost that sails by. And I can't seem to find anywhere that there was actually a, a record of that other than his book. So it, it did it happen? Probably. But um, if I can't find at least a primary source on it, it's real difficult for a journalist like me to just say, okay, let's run with it. So I don't see the biggest mystery in there, but I do know everybody's been looking for it. I know our museum. I'm, I'm on the board of directors at Whitefish Point, which is the museum that has the bell of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And we're very actively searching and found 10 shipwrecks up in the area that uh, it might be in. And, and north of theirs, as we get into Canadian waters, is where it most likely would be as well. That was uh, back in 1902, uh, and it's featured, I believe, in in your book, Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters. Was there a bottle found with a message, a, a message of help? Yep, the captain was just basically saying, we're in trouble, and that was it, and uh, very cryptic, and most people believe that it, it really was an authentic, you know, a non-authentic uh, bottle. There were a lot of people that, for some reason, would just print these uh, these bottled, uh, you make a note, throw it in there, and pretend that it came from a storm. From 1913, there were uh, three from the price alone. There was another one that was all too real from the, the Plymouth that came ashore in Michigan, and the body of the guy that wrote it wasn't too far from it. So some of them very real. Some of them, sadly, were, were hoaxes. How do you authenticate uh, something like that? The, the case of the Plymouth was all too real because the, the Plymouth had 
gotten coal from a certain coal company and the note was written on the back of that so they not only knew that the Plymouth had been in there but on it it was written by a, a former policeman a, a, a US Marshal named Chris Keenan who said you know goodbye to his family and basically we lost a man last night the captain of the tug went away and never said goodbye he laid out the entire story um, really uh, getting the, the tugboat in trouble for abandoning them in this storm. And then at the very end of the note, he said, the, the lumber company owes me 35 bucks so you can get it. So here are all of these facts that, that lined up perfectly for, you know, to make this a true bottle. And the family certainly embraced the fact that it was real. Other stories we see that they get the date of the storm wrong and we say, well, that doesn't make sense, or the captain's name, or the place that it was lost. Um, in the case of the Benjamin Noble, was uh, we now that we found the shipwreck, we know it's a hundred miles off of where the bottle says they were sinking. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't play out that it was real. The question, really, I guess, is why would somebody do that to to write a note? It became so bad that Lloyd's of London, the insurance company, was offering a reward if you turned somebody in that was writing these horrible notes that were fake. Wow, uh, how long? In in the cases where these are authenticated, how long from the time it's tossed into the uh, the water does it does it come ashore and then f is found? Many times it, it's within two or three days. But now, thank heavens, I've got the ability to search newspapers um, by keywords. Where we used to go into a library or a museum and read microfiche, we'd have to look at every paper and look at every article and hope that we don't miss it. Well, now we can type in message in a bottle or in the case of the, the Benjamin Noble or the Kamloops where there was actually a, a bottle that came ashore from one of the, the uh, stewardesses on board. Um, that one took a, a full year because it traveled from Isle Royal all the way to the far east end of, the, uh, of Ontario. So just above where the, the St. Mary's River comes in for the Sioux Locks, that's the, where it traveled. And you know, by then they'd already found the, the poor woman frozen to death on, on Isle Royal. Wow. Um, are they still finding authentic messages in bottles? They are. In fact, I, I, I did a lecture um, for the largest show, a dive show in Ohio. Um, I believe it was in January or February. And the lady came in out of the audience and had a little bottle that she found in the Sheboygan River. And it was just a guy that... Uh, wrote in there, hey, this is my name, and it was 90 years ago. And he said, I, I hope this finds uh, you know, its way out into the lakes. Unfortunately, it had a leak, and it sank just about where he threw it in. And uh, luckily, the note was in good enough shape that she could track down the family. And sadly, he had already passed uh, within just a couple of years, less than a decade. And uh, his family had many stories to tell her. Yeah, we're seeing these notes all the time, and, and some are real like that. And some are fake that we see, too, that are written by people. And some are just to say hi, you know, which kind of breaks my heart because we see enough litter on the Great Lakes. Uh, we don't need more plastic bottles floating around with just messages of hello. We see enough of those, uh, those Mylar balloons floating out there to, to know that, you know, the Great Lakes are being trashed. So I, I hope nobody thinks of doing that. True, true. But in, in, in some respects, I'm hearing that the Great Lakes are um – much in much better shape than they were, you know, decades ago. That that, uh, and, and I don't know if that's a lack of, you know, in, uh, industry closing down. Uh, but I'm hearing good things about Lake Erie, for example. 
Erie's amazing. It's fishery, as you said, with the pickerel, uh, the walleye, as, as we call them in the States, um, is an amazing fishery there. This is a place, you know, off of Cleveland that the river actually had enough fuel on it that it caught fire at one time. And into the 70s and the 80s, with the massive cleanups that we had, um, in the invention, especially of the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, we see even shipwrecks that have sunk with fuel um, that were cleaned up to the tune of millions of dollars. And that this happened even in the 90s that they found an old shipwreck that was leaking. So, yeah, we've been very good about that. There's, there's worries that, you know, many of the shipwrecks will leak. Um, they've looked at an environmental impact of even the Edmund Fitzgerald, but it's so cold down there the fuel oil that's on board is just like gel and it, it will never leave that wreck. Um, another uh, shipwreck that you mentioned in uh, Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters, is uh, the Christmas tree ship uh, that was lost on Lake Michigan back in the 1880s with only one survivor. The Christmas tree ship, was it actually carrying Christmas trees? It was, and, and it, to me, it was more amazing on how this ship became famous because there were at least six different ships that were carrying evergreens that were lost over the years. It just turned out that uh, uh, Schooneman, the captain, was uh, just endeared by the uh, newspapers in Chicago. So when he'd bring in his cargoes, the Captain Santa would get all of these massive headlines, and he turned this into quite an enterprise. Um, and so many people would go down to the riverfront to get their trees. Uh, unfortunately for him, he had a very old ship. The Ruth Simmons had, had no business being on the lakes. It was a joint ownership by a bunch of different owners. And it was pushed, uh, you know, beyond really its means. As you get into 1912, there were very few of these, uh, these sailing vessels that were on the lakes. Most of them were being towed as barges then. So he's coming back from Manistique. He gets into a horrible storm, and he puts up his uh, flag upside down so that the lifesavers can see him. Unfortunately, the, the closest station uh, does, has a rowboat, and they just couldn't reach him in time. So they called down to the next one down, and those guys took their motorboat out there, and by then the, the vessel had, had sunk. So the big mystery is what happened to Captain Santa and why were these Christmas trees washing ashore? And in my book, I go into extreme detail on how his widow and especially his two daughters um, received all kinds of, of uh, sympathy from the press and really became the top Christmas tree dealers in a time period when you know, bigger stores were actually uh, moving more trees. But because of that, you know, the, even... Elsie would actually go down to the newspapers and say, by the way, I wanted to remind you my dad died. You know, and I, I don't mean to, to be callous, but the, the fact is that um, it went well, well beyond, I think, just grieving um, to a point that she knew that, that um, people would buy a tree and pay a little bit extra um, if it was from the Christmas tree ship and the widows, and they played that up. And this is a time during suffragette, too, so women power was coming on. It was very unique that a woman would be in charge and Every article goes about how she was out there. The, the wife was chopping her own trees, and, and a lot of it was fake. You know, Elsie never did get her captain's license, as I said in the paper. But in the book, I go into extreme detail, and they talk about, you know, raising the captain's uh, skull. They talk about finding his wallet, um, all kinds of things that have never really been substantiated. But that, that has really become, as you mentioned, the, the holy grail would be the griffin, uh, the Christmas tree ship would be the third most famous, but I would have to say that the most famous is the Edmund Fitzgerald. 
and we will get to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, as we uh, approach the top of the hour. Rick Mixter stays with us into the next hour as we continue to discuss Great Lakes, storms, and shipwrecks.